I invite you to take out your Bibles and open them again to Jonah chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 920. Our text is verses 14 through 16, but we'll read the whole chapter again to be reminded of its context. Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." Thus far, the reading of God's word. Francis Thompson was born in 1859 in northwest England. He always felt that he was to be a writer, but his parents insisted that he go to medical school instead. After failing medical school, he went to London to pursue his dream of writing, but soon became a homeless drug addict. He still managed to write a few poems, and soon the editors of a periodical, who happened to be Christians, took notice of his talents. They gave him a home, and the Lord used them to draw Francis to himself. In response, 
Francis Thompson wrote what some call the greatest ode in the English language, entitled it, The Hound of Heaven. It starts this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. It goes on to describe God as footsteps that kept following him no matter where he went. And after describing all the ways that he sought pleasure apart from God, Francis ends the poem with the, re- with the realization that the gloom he felt was actually the shade of God's hand that was outstretched, beckoning him, rise, clasp my hand, and come. Just as he pursued Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven pursues Jonah in our text. Last week, we heard how God had a plan for Jonah and ordered him to be a missionary to the nations. But as we all know, Jonah wanted nothing to do with this sharing of God's mercy with the city of Nineveh. But God doesn't let Jonah off the hook. In our text today, we see that the sovereign Lord relentlessly pursues his fleeing missionary. We'll see how this is revealed in three ways. First, the restraining storm. Second, the accidental sermon. And third, the converted sailors. Let's dive right in and see how verses 4 through 6 show God pursuing his servant through the restraining storm. Just as we saw last week, notice how our text starts in verse 4. But the Lord. This is another reminder for us that God is in the driver's seat all throughout this book. God is not surprised by Jonah's disobedience, and he's not frantically reacting to save face. No, God willed all of this to happen and recorded it in Scripture to be a mirror for the Jews to see themselves in. Before we uncover more of the symbolism of this book, I want to pause and make a clarification. Some mistakenly believe that since there are so many parallels between Jonah and and Israel's history, this book must be a parable and not actually be true. But where in the text does God indicate that this is a parable? Nowhere. God inspired this book as real history And Jesus talks about it in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 as if it really happened, and we should take it for just that. Who says that God can't orchestrate the events of one man's life to be a type of an entire nation? Those who deny the historical truth of this book place themselves in the judgment seat above God's word, and that's not a stance we as Christians should take. We believe that God uses Jonah's life to teach Israel and us about what our mission is supposed to be. So what new characters or events are introduced in verses 4 through 6? The storm is introduced first, but before we take a deep look at it, I want to introduce the sailors. We know that in the days of Solomon, some of his servants sailed with the Phoenicians in search of gold, but overall, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. Since we are not told otherwise, it's safe to assume that these are all pagan Gentiles on the boat with Jonah. And in verse 5, the Hebrew text accentuates the distinctiveness of the sailors, translated as each in our Bibles. In other words, the text could have said, and they cried out to their gods, but it's more distinct than that. This seems to be highlighting that there were multiple gods being cried out to, and thus multiple religions represented. Maybe some of the sailors were from Joppa, some were from ports further north, and maybe some were even from Tarshish, wherever that was. The thing for us to see 
is that just as we saw with Nineveh, the sailors are representative of the nations of the earth. See what God has done here? Jonah disobeyed the command to go to Nineveh, but God still has him right where he wants him. Jonah is in the midst of the nations, even when he is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now we turn our attention to the storm. The first thing we need to see is, that, is what the sailors knew right away. This is not a regular storm. Now it's true that there are often storms on the Mediterranean Sea. Paul was caught up in one of them on his way to Rome. But the strong storms are quite seasonal. It is highly unlikely that the sailors would have put off from land during the stormy season. So this tempest during the sailing season is their big clue that something divine is going on here. It would be easy to assume that this divine tempest is flowing out of God's anger against Jonah's sin. On the one hand, that's correct. There's a level of judgment to it, but it's an oversimplified view of what's going on here. Knowing that God has called Jonah to the mission field in Nineveh, is there not a measure of mercy in this storm? By not letting Jonah run away, God is restraining Jonah temporarily so that he can draw him back to himself. How often do we experience something of the same? How often does God lead us back to himself through the consequences of our sins? Is that not the point of the discipline that parents give to their children? Parents, when your kids disobey and stand in need of correction, I hope you're not missing the opportunity to point your children to Christ. Discipline that is disconnected from Christ ends up being only punishment for wrong. And if a child is only ever punished that way, then all they learn is which behaviors to avoid. The discipline of Christian parents is modeled after what God is doing with Jonah. Sure, there's a consequence, a storm, but it's being used to draw the disobedient one back to God and his will for our lives. Another thing to see here is that the discipline that Jonah is receiving does not affect just him. In fact, while he's sleeping and oblivious to his perilous state, it's the sailors who are taking the brunt of the storm. In order to prolong their lives, they are throwing the cargo, their very livelihood, overboard. But they realize that what they have done is not enough. Their lives are still in grave danger. Is this not the same with Israel and the nations? God desired the nations to know him and serve him through the witness of Israel. But God's covenant people disobeyed and abandoned their ministry. And now because the covenant people were living pagan lives... The salvation of the nations is at risk. If the only person on board the boat who knows the one who hurled the storm at them remains sleeping, will anybody on the boat survive? Similarly, if Israel and Judah were to completely apostatize and forget God, would there be any hope of anybody on earth being saved in the future? Humanly speaking, the answer is no. But we're not dealing with just humans, are we? God will not let his desire for the nations be thwarted, so he intervenes. God uses the pagan nations to rouse Israel from their spiritual slumber, just as he uses the captain of the sailors to rouse Jonah. Notice the words of the captain. Just as Jonah received the word of the Lord, saying, Arise and call out against Nineveh, now the captain tells Jonah to arise and call out to his God. Will Jonah obey this time? Similar to how he responded in verse 1, he rises to speak with the sailors, but he does not call out to the God of Israel. 
Why would Jonah not join the sailors in praying to his God for deliverance from the storm? I think that answer can be found by asking it of ourselves. When you and I know that we're living in sin and disobeying God, do we feel like praying to God or do we avoid him? If you're not sure you're ready to repent of a sin, do you feel like it would be easier to ignore God than to ask him for other things? Sure, we might be able to go through the motions of a prayer, but we know deep in our hearts that it's not a prayer of faith. But as we'll see in our next point, although Jonah refuses to pray, he does end up preaching an accidental sermon. We'll start off with a quick word about the casting of lots in verse 7. The practice of casting lots was common in biblical times for discerning the will of a god. The Israelites had used the casting of lots for determining guilty parties, such as discovering the sin of Achan, as described in Joshua 7. And in Leviticus 16, we are told how they used the lot to determine which goat would be the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Here we see that the casting of lots was a practice of the Gentile nations as well. We don't know if God ordained how every lot of the Gentiles was cast, but we know for certain that he was presiding over this one. The lot fell on Jonah, and the eyes of all the sailors turned to him. Notice the questions that the sailors ask him. They want to know if he truly is the guilty party, but they also want to know all about him. Their first question uses the same word evil that we talked about last time from verse 2. It could have been translated as, tell us on whose account this disaster has come upon us. That would make perfect sense, but the word evil reminds us that the sailors knew this is a divine storm. They know that a God is angry because of something one of them did. Now look at the rest of the questions they ask in verse 8. They're questions of identity. In some ways, they're the same questions that many of you have asked me in the past couple of weeks. What is your country and, what, and of what people are you from? Their last two questions, what is your country and what people are you, appear to be more questions of location, but commentators have noted that together they, act, they are actually a question of religion. What God do you serve? Jonah's response to these questions is very intriguing because he's selective about which ones he answers. He completely skips the question about occupation and goes right to his ethnicity. Are we surprised about this? We shouldn't be. Jonah makes no mention of his role as a prophet because he doesn't want to be a prophet. He knows that if he, if he admits to being God's mouthpiece, then he has a calling to fulfill. Jonah boarded this ship in the first place in hopes that God would pass on his role as a prophet to somebody else. But what Jonah does tell the sailors is also significant. He's happy to mention that he's a Hebrew a member of God's chosen people. This brings us back to what we talked about last time as well. Jonah is proud of his membership in God's chosen people, but he's not about to extend God's mercy to a foreign nation by being a prophet. Jonah's selectivity in his identity is telling in more ways than one, but his answer to the question about his religion is the most interesting. Here is a man who is running away from God, from God's calling, and he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. One has to stop and wonder if Jonah has lost his mind here. First of all, how can he say that he fears the Lord while he's running away from him? And secondly, how does he think he can run away from the God that he knows made the heavens and the earth? 
it seems quite obvious that Jonah is putting on a false front, hoping nobody notices the sin in his life. How many of us have done or are doing the same thing right now? Are you secretly living a life of sin, but keep coming to, the, to church so that people assume you're still a Christian? Are you afraid that if people pried into your life too much, they, find, they might find out how little you regard God's commandments? Don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that if you sinned in the past week, you shouldn't be here. If the remaining sin in your life grieves you, then praise the Lord that you can come into his house to hear about the forgiveness of sins you have in Christ Jesus. But if you know of a sin in your life that you're not quite willing to let go of because it brings you too much earthly pleasure, then God calls you to repent of that sin and flee to him for forgiveness and grace. The response of the sailors to Jonah's confession shows how God can use such simple words to stir the hearts of men. Keep in mind that the gods of the Gentiles were usually territorial. This is made clear in passages like 1 Kings 20, which tell of the wars between King Ahab and Syria. God allowed Israel to defeat the Syrians twice because they provoked him by saying that he was only a god of the hills, but not of the valleys. When Jonah reveals that his God is the creator of the sea and the dry land, the sailors are terrified. If Jonah has angered his God, who created the very sea that is tossing them about, then what hope do they have of getting this storm to cease? Notice what God has done here. Jonah fled to avoid witnessing to the nations, but God has led him to do just that. God sent the storm to stop Jonah in his tracks and force him to be his missionary to the nations. There is no way for Jonah to not do God's will for his life, which we will, which we will see more clearly by the converted sailors. Now that they know who Jonah is running from, the sailors ask Jonah what should be done to him. We should hear a sense of urgency in this question, because even though they tossed the cargo overboard, identified who caused the storm, and heard Jonah's confession, the storm is still growing stronger and more tempestuous. It's obvious to the sailors that something more has to be done to end this storm. So they ask the only one who knows the God who made the sea what they should do. So what should Jonah tell them? What can be done to appease the God of this storm? Well, what are we called to do when we are confronted with sin in our lives? How about repent? Although the text never mentions it as an option, I believe that if Jonah had confessed his sin before God, repented of it, and submitted himself to God's calling to go to Nineveh, the storm would have ceased. Why do I say this? For a couple of reasons. The first being God's promise to King Solomon. After Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, God appeared to him in a dream and told him these words in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God is a forgiving God to those who humble themselves and seek him. And isn't this reflected in what we know is coming later in the book of Jonah? God has promised destruction on Nineveh if they don't repent. But when they do repent, he relents. I believe that God's very character shows us that if Jonah had humbled himself and repented, then God would have relented on the storm that threatened the lives of all on the boat. But as we see in our text, that's not what Jonah does. No, he's still not ready to go to Nineveh. 
Jonah's response shows that he would rather die than repent and preach to Nineveh. But in Jonah's response, we do see that his heart is beginning to soften just a bit. If Jonah's heart was completely hardened toward God and the nations, he could have said, there's nothing that can be done. We're all going to sink with this ship. But he doesn't say that either, does he? No. Jonah knows that he alone is the guilty party, so he offers to die alone so that the sailors can be spared. So although Jonah is still not willing to repent and see God's mercy offered to the Ninevites, he shows mercy to the sailors. Does that not seem inconsistent? I think Jonah's inconsistent extension of God's mercy is explained by his proximity to the sailors. Jonah can see the physical danger that the sailors are in, and he knows that unless he does something, they will perish. Their plight is clearly laid out before him. But with the people of Nineveh, Jonah has no such proximity. Because the Ninevites are far away, and Jonah only knows them as warring enemies, he's unable to see the danger they're in. Jonah's distance from their plight keeps his heart hard towards them. How often do we react the same way? If someone close to us, perhaps a sibling, child, or friend, is dying of cancer, we mourn and grieve with them and pray that God will make the treatments effective. But when we hear about the hundreds of thousands of people who die from malaria every year, we might think to ourselves, wow, how terrible, and move on with our day. Or how about this? When a relative or friend abandons the church and admits they're not a, that they're not a Christian, we pray for their salvation and their spiritual plight grieves us greatly. But how do we respond when we hear that roughly a billion people have never even heard the gospel? Do we respond with anything more than, wow, that's a lot of people? Martin Niemöller knew this lack of empathy well. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the 1930s and ended up in the prison camps for speaking out against Hitler. After the war, he said, First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Why the indifference for so long? The suffering hadn't hit close enough to home yet. Now, of course, we understand that we can't personally solve the problems of the world on our own, but we can do more than give a fleeting thought. We can pray. I am convinced that God uses prayer to draw us closer to people whom we are distanced from, either emotionally or physically. And if the church at large were to pray with broken hearts for the salvation of the lost, I also believe that more men and families would answer the call to be ministers and missionaries to a lost and broken world. So do the sailors follow through with Jonah's orders? Eventually they do, but not immediately. Note that the sailors are scared to follow through with Jonah's orders. If the God of Israel can send such a violent storm after someone trying to flee from him, what will he do to them if they shed innocent blood? By this, the sailors are showing more fear of the Lord than Jonah. But when the sailors toss him overboard, the sea calmed down immediately, confirming that Jonah was indeed the guilty party. Here we see another picture of how Jonah represents the nation of Israel. Just as Jonah was tossed overboard by the sailors to appease God's wrath, so too Israel was taken into captivity 
and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Gentiles to appease God's anger toward his people. At first glance, it may seem that the sailors are more reluctant to throw Jonah overboard than the Babylonians were to destroy God's people. But I think a reading of 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, as well as Jeremiah chapters 39 through 43, reveal more patience on the part of Babylon than we give them credit for. Jerusalem was not completely destroyed until Judah rebelled twice against Babylon, infuriating Nebuchadnezzar. And it was only after another rebellion that the last of the Jews left the land of Israel, thus leaving the promised land void of both God's people and his temple. Even through the judgment by Babylon, God left opportunities for his people to repent and turn from their wicked ways, but they rebelled time and time again. Eventually, there was no choice left but to cast them out completely. As indicated by the heading, the converted sailors, I'm convinced by verse 16 that the sailors became true worshipers of the Lord. Some may say that these are just foxhole prayers and sacrifices, short-lived confessions made out of desperation. But if that were the case, wouldn't they have done this while the storm was still raging? I would be inclined to believe that this is a false conversion if it had happened just after Jonah's confession while the storm was still threatening to destroy them. But that's not what we're presented with. After throwing the cargo overboard, it's highly unlikely that they had anything left to sacrifice, so many commentators believe this is a postscript of sorts, telling us of what the sailors did once they were back on dry land. What a clear indication that God's will always comes to pass. Even in his rebellion, Jonah accomplishes the calling that God gave to him. The nations are beginning to worship the true Lord. Of course, he has more to do. He still needs to go to Nineveh. But he is still a prophet of the Lord, whether he wants to be or not. Although verse 17 will be part of our text next time, we can't end today with Jonah drowning in the sea. God was not pursuing Jonah just to destroy him, but to save him. God is not done with Jonah yet, so he sent the great fish to preserve Jonah in the face of death. The mercy of God that Jonah at first found so offensive ends up being his only hope. Unless God acts miraculously, Jonah will drown. The book of Jonah was written as a mirror for the Israelite people, but clearly it is a mirror for us too. God has placed a claim on our lives, and he calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But just like Jonah, we fail miserably to live out that calling. Just as Jonah rightfully deserved to be thrown into the sea, so we too deserve to be cast into the lake of fire for our sins. And just as Jonah's only hope of rescue was God's divine provision, so too our only hope is that God intervene. And what an astounding intervention he performed. Christ left the glories of heaven and came down to this earth to become human, just like all of us. His entire life was an experience of suffering, but nobody has ever experienced suffering like he did during his last week here on earth. Although innocent, he was declared guilty. And although he could have delivered himself with legions of angels, he chose to hang alone on the cross. And just as Jonah's life was ransomed to spare the sailors from death, so too Jesus offered himself up for others. As he foretold about himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's one of the many parallels we can draw between Jonah and Jesus. We can also note that they were both sleeping in a boat filled with terrified passengers during a violent storm. Jonah might remind us of Jesus and point us to Jesus, but it's the differences between them that are what we so desperately need of. Jonah had to be sacrificed for the sea to be made calm. But Jesus, as Lord of all creation, only had to speak a word for the wind and the waves to obey him. Jonah was unable to save himself when he saved the sailors. Jesus had no need of salvation because he had never sinned. Jonah offered his life as a ransom because he knew that he was guilty. Jesus offered himself as a ransom for us only because he loved us. You see, God's pursuit of Jonah is not like that of an angry parent storming after a disobedient child saying, you come back here, you will obey me before this is all done. No, God's pursuit of Jonah and of us is a pursuit of love. God pursues Jonah because he wants both Jonah and Nineveh to see how great his love is for all of his creatures. And Christ pursued his church, shedding his own blood on the cursed cross, to pursue his church of all ages. Our Lord and Savior was willing to bear God's eternal wrath because he loved you and he loved me more than we can fully comprehend. And our Lord and Savior calls us to reflect his pursuing spirit by witnessing to the nations. It should be our joy and delight to tell our neighbors, both near and far, about God's love that will stop at nothing to claim his children. Dear people of God, This relentless pursuit by God should be a great source of comfort to you. Rest in the fact that despite your many sins and shortcomings, Jesus Christ pursued you all the way to the cross. If he was willing to go that far for you, we have no reason to doubt that he will draw us back to himself when we wander from his calling. And if you find yourself on the run from God, trying to find fulfillment in the vain pleasures of this world, I urge you to submit to the hound of heaven. He is ever pursuing you. And if you submit to him, you will find not wrath, but rest for your soul. Praise be to God that he does not leave us in our sins, but pursues us so that we can dwell with him in heaven forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. We confess far too often we seek to cleanse ourselves. Help us to see the depth of our defilement that we may flee to Christ for the cleansing that only he can give. Thank you for pursuing us and for dying on the cross to give us this cleansing. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. Through Christ our Lord, amen.